0: She has a fiery soul that cannot be tamed. She has a free spirit that cannot be maimed. She moves with the wind and flows with the river. She howls at the moon and smiles at the sun. Just when you think she is finished, she declares, I've just begun. Like wildflowers, she grows where she decides to push through fallow ground. Like wildfires, she spreads with speed that cannot be drowned. She has a mystery in her blood, magic in her touch, and regardless of her frame, she can be too much wild woman. She is not predictable, controllable, nor the people-pleasing kind. That's why she is called wild woman and can never be defined. Misha McCoy. welcome back to dead and gone in monthly podcast telling the stories of this remarkable state's most enduring murders and disappearances. I'm Scott Fuller and coming up on this month's episode, a honeymoon like no other into the Wyoming backcountry ends abruptly and leaves a groom without his bride. But is there more to this story than meets the eye? And might answers still be somewhere out there in the snow-covered Wyoming wilderness, even today, waiting to be found? always found amazing a specific stereotype that exists about wyoming if you live there now or if you ever have you're probably aware of all of these stereotypes my personal favorite is an internet meme or rather a conspiracy theory that claims wyoming doesn't really exist at all think about it have you ever actually met anyone from wyoming the question goes well if that's true I may have bigger problems than I realize. But the specific Wyoming stereotype I know to be most false has to do with you ladies. Women from Wyoming are just doting housewives to their ignorant cowboy husbands. They're lazy, can't even form a sentence without help from, again, the indifferent cowboy husbands that they felt forced to marry. Why else would any woman choose to live in Wyoming, after all? Because if it really does exist, there's nothing there but winter and cows and cowboys. Nobody who holds that stereotype, it seems to me, is aware of the irony in it. Esther Morris is most commonly cited as the reason that Wyoming is known as the equality state, but there are many more. and Swain of Laramie became the first woman in American history to vote in 1870. Estelle Rio was elected to state office four years after Wyoming became a state. Later, she became one of the first women in America to hold national office. In the interest of time, I'll stop listing Wyoming's rich history of female empowerment there. But the stereotype of Wyoming women is not just ironic in its ignorance of history. It's also just wrong. And I'm inclined in this episode to give my own counter-stereotype in response. It's been my experience that the women of Wyoming are strong. Strong more than any other thing, which is notable a virtue enough. But I'll even go on further and contend to anyone who cares to know that there is, in fact, no stronger and yet at the same time kinder and compassionate person than a woman who was born and raised in Wyoming. It's a gentle strength that I can't say does not exist anywhere else, but it's palpable to anyone who takes the time to get to know anyone from Wyoming. Another irony is that the women who live in the equality state are perhaps the most ardent feminists in the country to this day. But that word, feminism, might mean something different out there than it does in other places. Anyone who thinks a Wyoming woman is subservient and solely dependent on her man, I'd contend hasn't met a woman from Wyoming, or for that matter, a man from Wyoming. Women in Wyoming love their land. They love their community. They love the outdoors. They love music. And the people who live out here in the other areas away from Wyoming, the quote-unquote cultured women of the East Coast and the West Coast and anywhere else practically outside of Wyoming, fail to understand that the women of Wyoming are in fact their own unique culture. This, I can tell you, is not apparent to outsiders, people who have never lived or spent time or even cared to meet or get to know anybody from Wyoming. They just don't get it. And you ladies already know this. And as you'd probably say, that's okay, because they probably never will get it. Strength and compassion. Olga Schultz was a woman of Wyoming. She was 5'6", 135 pounds, and gorgeous. Movie star, good looks. Seven years separated the two. Olga was 21. Her husband-to-be, Carl, was 28 years old. And so Olga Schultz and Carl Malger were married by a judge in Harrison, Nebraska, in the fall of 1934. And the honeymoon began. Olga's sister and her husband had been at the ceremony in Nebraska, and now they would join the newlywed couple on their honeymoon to follow. To invite a guest on a honeymoon trip would have been as unusual then as it is now, but then again, this wasn't a usual honeymoon, and the Maugers were not a typical couple. Olga had been raised in Midwest Wyoming, a town of just a few hundred people in Natrona County. Growing up in Wyoming with brothers Hunting and fishing in the outdoors had been a way of life for Olga since before she could walk, so no beaches or sightseeing would be in the cards for Olga and Carl. Their first week as husband and wife would be spent on a leisurely elk hunting trip in Wyoming. Traveling from Nebraska first to South Dakota, the four got themselves lost on a dark gravel road in Gillette, Wyoming, on their way to eventually Jackson Hole, an ominous sign for the rest of the trip and the rest of the marriage it would turn out Olga's sister had helped her pack for the hunting portion of the trek and this part of the honeymoon would be theirs and theirs alone although Olga implored her sister and her husband to join them but they had other plans for that weekend and so that saturday the newlyweds borrowed a tent along with some advice always carry two things that cost a nickel on a hunting trip salts and matches because If you get lost, you might have to kill and eat a porcupine. That evening, the two stopped and stayed the night in Dubois. The following day, they pitched their borrowed tent 36 miles away near the foot of Togity Pass. At that time, the area hadn't been hunted in years, and Carl thought that area of land would bring them the best of luck. On Monday... Somebody placed a long-distance phone call from Lander to one of Olga's brothers, but the call was interrupted, and the caller never tried again. 48 hours later, Olga's family got their first inkling that something on the trip had gone wrong when they read a brief notice in the Casper Star Tribune. Within the hour, most of Olga's family in the area was in a car headed to Jackson Hole. Olga's family arrived at the campsite to mount a search, only to find the area had been already trampled through by official searchers from the day before. Goes without saying, their spirits were not lifted at the sight of this. They were behind, and something had happened to Olga in the Wyoming wilderness, probably around Sunday. And right away, at least, nobody seemed to know what. Not even her husband. Carl told searchers and Olga's family that he'd last seen his new bride on Monday morning as the two started out from their campsite. The two crossed a nearby highway and headed into the woods for a day of hunting. Olga was wearing mostly tan clothing along with a gray sweatshirt and lace-up hiking boots. She carried two sandwiches for lunch and a hand axe fastened to her belt. The two walked for about a mile, according to her husband, along a well-defined game trail toward the rocky top of a nearby pass. The going was tougher than either of them had expected, Carl said, due to the downed timber that had to be navigated along the path. As the two of them approached the summit, Carl felt a second wind. He was eager to reach the top and view the rugged valley below through his field glasses. Not far from their goal, Carl said that he left Olga sitting on a rock, as she'd had a more difficult time with the climb. Carl shortly after reached the summit, and after what he estimated to be about 20 minutes, he called back down to his wife, who he'd lost sight of in summiting the pass. With no response, Carl headed back down to where he'd last seen Olga, only to find on his arrival that his new wife was no longer sitting on the boulder where he'd left her. Olga was in fact nowhere to be found. When he looked down, Carl could see both his and her boot prints in the dusty trail down the mountain, and then he noticed that her tracks had just abruptly ended at a certain point. This was perplexing to Carl even further. He hadn't encountered her on his way back down the path. If Olga had continued on and wanted to join him on top, why would she have left the trail, which was clearly defined the whole way? Unsure of what else to do, Karl Malger returned to his campsite to see if Olga had returned there as well. He also figured this would be the wisest course of action anyway. If Olga had gotten lost, he didn't have the first clue where to start looking for her, so maybe she would make her way back down to the campsite later in the day. Karl maintains that the two had not fought that morning or the night before, or, in fact, at any point during their ten-day-old marriage. He claimed that his wife seemed to have simply disappeared. Of course, a search was launched for Olga Malger late Monday. It was reported that 150 men were involved in the initial days of the search. Over 100 more would join the effort soon after from Dubois, Salander, and even Fort Washakie. But by today's standards, the search was far from extensive. For a few days during that week, the area around the camp and the peak of the pass were canvassed by ground searchers, but most of them hadn't been into these woods before, and several of them had never mounted any search effort in Wyoming at all. There was even some concern among the searchers that in the process of looking for this missing woman, they would become lost themselves. As precious time went by, planes took to the sky, north of Jackson. Eventually, footprints that officials believed to be made by Olga Malgar were found in the snow. But these tracks were found in Turpin Meadows on the west slope of the Continental Divide and eight miles from where Carl said he'd last seen his wife. More importantly, in order for Olga to have made those tracks in Turpin Meadows, she would have had to have crossed back over the highway, what is now Highway 26, in order to get there. A hiker in distress would more likely follow the highway for help or flag down a passing motorist for assistance than venture back into the woods from the highway in the opposite direction. Olga had been prepared for just a day trip. She was not equipped in clothing or supplies to weather the September conditions in the high country. Frigid temperatures at night combined with the rough terrain gave those searching for her little hope that she could be found alive. One hiker returned from the woods in the same area to report to authorities that he had heard a woman shouting from the area of Togiti Pass, but the cries were very faint and indistinct, and of course, there was no way to know definitely that the sounds had been Olga's desperate attempts to find help. For his part, Carl told reporters that he hadn't been able to sleep in the days since losing his wife in the woods. But nonetheless, he participated in search efforts throughout the week. On Friday, four days after Olga had been reported missing, the search ended in hopelessness. Olga would not be found, the consensus became. And none of the men searching could imagine that she would be found alive. That's about when a snowstorm had hit the area, bringing 10 to 20 inches of snow. The same storm killed six people across the west. Olga had surely frozen to death at night or fallen off a cliff, and the search ended there. But the searchers had located one item of Olga's, the paper sack that Carl said she'd been carrying the couple sandwiches in on Monday. But that was all. And it didn't take long for local authorities to speculate about other possible theories in their case of a missing hiker. Perhaps Olga Mauger had never been lost at all. By the following Monday, one week after he'd set out into the woods with his wife, Carl Mauger was in custody for the disappearance of Olga. County Attorney Wilford M. Nielsen cited something that the Indian trackers from Fort Washakie had pointed out to him. The area where Olga allegedly went missing was rugged, yes, but it's also open country. In fact, they established that the place where Carl says he left Olga to summit the pass, at that spot he would have been in full view of her and she of him almost the entire way to the summit. Carl Malger steadfastly maintained that he and Olga had not fought on the trip. But a week later, Teton County authorities publicly proclaimed their belief that that is exactly what happened, that a minor quarrel perhaps escalated and led to the 21-year-old woman's death. And locals were coming to realize that when it came to Olga's devastated spouse, Carl Mauger, nobody in the area really seemed to know much about him. He'd only recently arrived about a year before, as best I can tell, and took a job as a pipe layer for an oil and gas company. He met Olga at a dance in Midwest Wyoming, and the two were married within just weeks. But according to press reports at the time, Carl Mauger had recently lost his job with the oil company before the wedding. The year before he met Olga, he was fined for illegal possession of liquor in Cheyenne. This seems to be about the time that Carl moved to Midwest and eventually met the beautiful red-haired Olga, who was living with her mother at the time. It's not even known for sure where Carl Mauger was born, although in 1929 he attended a family reunion in Conesville, Iowa. And soon enough, reports surfaced that Carl Mauger, as those in Wyoming knew him, might have had a troubled legal past as Carl Mager in Denver, where a man known by that name was wanted on a warrant for larceny. In light of this possible new information, Mauger was brought back into the county jail for further questioning and examination of a birthmark, which seems to have been somehow instrumental in the identification of the man who was wanted in Denver. But it does not appear that police were ever able to confirm that Carl Mauger, husband of a missing wife, was the same person as Carl Mager, wanted by police in Colorado. And so for a second time, Carl Mauger was released. Meanwhile, in 1934, just as happens today, sightings of the missing woman began pouring in from all over the region. One especially promising tip, that Olga had been seen alive and well in Casper, was examined by authorities in person, but eventually that proved to be unfounded. A woman who apparently bore a striking resemblance to Olga was located in Scottsbluff, Nebraska, but soon after it was determined she was not the missing woman either. Similar sightings came in from all over the West in the weeks that followed members of the public seemed less sure than local authorities were that olga was even dead she might yet be alive the public seemed to think and this speculation was only bolstered when rumors about olga appeared in the press it was said that in the past she had gone missing before once for a week once for two weeks she had only known her husband for a few weeks before they got married and while Carl Malger claimed that the two were in the midst of honeymoon bliss at the time that she went missing. Perhaps she had gotten cold feet just a couple of days into the marriage and simply run away on her own accord. When the weather cleared, a renewed search effort for Olga or her remains in the area was launched within 2 weeks, and a cash reward was now being offered for information in the case. Olga's family, most of them anyway, were among those who believed that she was still alive. Her siblings especially argued that, being from the area, Olga knew how to survive in the woods. They theorized she'd planned to leave her husband soon after marrying him, and she took the opportunity of being left alone on the trail to hike back down and hitch a ride and leave. Carl Malger, on the other hand, believed that Olga had somehow become lost on the trail and probably had died from exposure. After being questioned by police... He was rumored to have stayed in Casper for a time before returning home to Midwest, but this all is unclear. Apparently, by the following spring, he had made his way to Sheridan. Also during this time, for reasons I don't know, it's reported that the same Carl Mauger was, in fact, in the state of New Jersey. As Mr. Mauger settled into life without Mrs. Malger, wherever that was, the following spring, a new search was organized where she'd last been seen, and this time Carl would not be along but a posse of ten or so, including the local sheriff and that county attorney, would lead an effort into the mountains to again search for the 21-year-old when the snow cleared. An effort was even made to drain a nearby lake, but the lake proved too deep and too murky for that to be effective. That search did commence in May, and it continued on and off throughout that summer of 1935, but was unsuccessful in finding any trace. Later that summer, the case warmed up again, along with the weather, long before Facebook memes and email forwards. People seemed to pass their time when they were away from one another by corresponding through chain letters. Chain letters were all the rage in the 1930s and 40s and later. And indeed, the very first known chain letter originated in Denver in the same year that Olga's sister received her chain letter. For all we know, it might have been the very same letter, that first one. If it was the same, the first chain letter promised the sender good fortune if he or she signed it and forwarded the letter on to several other people. The letter that Olga's sister received had Olga's name on it. It Apparently, had appeared among the other names on that chain letter. This led Olga's sister to believe that Olga was not only alive, but she had escaped to Wyoming and was now living in Denver. The belief was strong enough that Olga's sister contacted the Denver Police Department, which took the tip seriously. And so, in July, a search for the mysterious Olga Yates, as the name appeared in the letter, commenced in the Mile High City. But Olga Yates, as far as we know, was never found either. Over several summers and fall hunting seasons to follow, authorities reminded those who would venture into the central Wyoming wilderness to remember to keep an eye out for any trace of Olga Mauger. In May of 1941, Carl Mauger filed papers, quietly, to end his marriage to his wife, who'd been missing for nearly seven years by then. A divorce notice was published giving Olga two weeks to respond. She never did. Carl said that during those nearly seven years, he'd always expected Olga might come back. When she didn't, Carl married a woman he'd been dating back in Midwest, a woman he'd been dating right before he met Olga, a woman who, it's been rumored, was Olga's rival for Carl's affections. And the two moved to California. Both of Olga's parents passed away in later years, both perhaps being the only members of their family who believed that their daughter was no longer alive. Olga's siblings, on the other hand, maintained that she had run away to start a new life from her husband. They ran public notices in the newspaper for years, the last of which appeared in 1974 in the Casper Star Tribune. This final notice, in memoriam of their sister, published 40 years to the day of her disappearance, seemed to be a glimpse into their final knowledge after so long that their sister was, in fact, no longer with them. Olga's sister Edith Thompson of Green River spent the better part of her own life obsessed with finding answers to what happened to her sister at Togiti Pass that morning. She passed away in 1987. Olga Schultz, then Olga Malger, is surely dead now, along with everyone else involved in this story. The lingering question in this mystery that lives on for us. Was she alive when she turned around on that trail and walked down the mountain and hitched a ride to the east coast and lived out a full, separate life somewhere far, far away from Wyoming? Or is Olga Mauger, Olga Schultz, still up there on that pass, waiting to be discovered, finally? At the request of the Forest Service, the Fremont County Sheriff's Department some years ago opened a case on Olga's disappearance. And so, it is the oldest and coldest unsolved missing persons case in Wyoming history. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dead and Gone in Wyoming. If you like the show, you can show your support by telling just one friend about it. Send them a link. Show them how to download if you have to. Special thanks to our Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash Podcast. Their support is what's keeping the podcast going. Without it, we wouldn't be able to share these deepest mysteries that the West continues to produce for us even today email me if you like wyomingpodcast at gmail.com i love hearing your feedback that's all the time we have for this week but until we speak in june for everyone at county10.com i'm scott fuller already looking forward to bringing you the next episode of dead and gone in wyoming